This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People are definitely asking questions about geopolitical risks, even geographic adverse events like weather cycles have become pretty prominent in the last the last couple of months even across the US. But understanding how the supply chain gets impacted, ethical supply through ESG. That was Alistair Parr, SVP for Global Products and Delivery at Prevalent. In this episode, we take a deep dive into recent developments around third-party risk management, including on the sales side and the supply chain side. We touch on ESG procurement, geopolitical risks, and many other topics. I'm pleased to announce my first children's book about compliance, entitled Being a Compliance Officer is Awesome. It's the story of children who travel the galaxy to the dog rescue planet. There, they turned down a bribe to build a substandard facility. It's available on Amazon.com. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today we're going to geek out on third parties. And I can't think of a better topic for this podcast. I'm thrilled to have with me Alistair Parr. Alistair's with Prevalent. has been in, in and around this space for a long time. Alistair, first of all, thank you and welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's lovely to be here. Could you tell us your current role? Sure. Yes. I essentially operate as the Senior Vice President of Products and Services over here at Prevalent. So the things I tend to be dealing with on a day-to-day basis tends to be third-party risk management programs across a pretty broad set of our client estate. I get to see the best, the worst, and basically the ugly as well. You've been in this space for some time. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. So I've spent a fair bit of time a long way back dealing with DATOS prevention, so managed services geared around that. So we would typically be tracking millions of different endpoints. And the beauty of that meant that we got to see human behavior at a macro and a micro level. We'd see essentially everything that anybody was essentially up to on their machines, what they were transferring data against, and dealt with the issues on how to address that at scale. Uh, We see very similar things in third-party risk when it comes to scale solutions in that respect. 
From there, I've done information security auditing across third parties, which is how I got into the space. And then I've essentially was with a few partners, set up a company called FreeGRC. So we essentially built some software how to and how to operationalize, scale, standardize third-party assessments and various framework assessments. And then that was purchased by Prevalence, and now it's part of the big Prevalent hack. So I'll start, we are, that brings up, uh, we just ask you, what is the business of Prevalent? Good questions. As much as Prevalent is a technology vendor, and on the surface it appears to be that way, we focus on third-party risk management and, of course, the plethora of various frameworks and regulations that reside within that space. But based on the nature of the space, we are also a managed services and a, a process company. So we spend a lot of time working with our customers, helping them to refine, develop, and build their third-party governance process to address the regulatory landscape. So we've both been in this space for some time on the product slash tech side. I've been more on the sort of legal commentary side. In 2022, in terms of U.S. FCPA enforcement actions, once again, over 90% involve third parties. And so I wanted to start with asking you, here we are now in 2023 as we're recording this podcast. Do you think that businesses have finally gotten the message that third-party risk management is not simply a nice-to-have, but literally a must-to-have, not, not only from the regulatory perspective, but just in the B2B perspective? And I come out of the energy industry in Houston, and every energy company expects every contractor and subcontractor they do business with to have a third-party risk management solution in place. Is, are we finally to the point where it is table stakes? Or are you still having to have conversations with potential customers on, you really should do this, guys? It's a good question, Tom. I do think that we are finally reaching the point where it's almost expected. Agree that the space was in its somewhat infancy a decade ago. But what we're seeing is a great convergence nowadays, disparate business areas. So we're seeing the InfoSec teams, the compliance teams, audit, legal, procurement, all realizing they're doing things in their own respective silos with the third party estate and realizing that it's far more efficient and sensible for us to consolidate and treat this as a true risk management, risk adverse process. Uh, so organizations that we're seeing are becoming less checkbox based. So, of course, there's still that checkbox requirement for certain regs, et cetera, out there. But we are seeing people becoming more generally risk adverse and using their programs to demonstrate improvements on risk. So far less table, far more table stakes, which is great to see. So the this convergence, I want to actually overlay what I saw as some trends that I thought were encapsulated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And those were not things that came out of the blue. They had been percolating for some time and then accelerated during the pandemic. And I felt the Russian invasion of Ukraine really put an exclamation mark. And a couple of them were supply chain, anti-corruption, and the third ESG, and then cyber, and also trade sanctions. But it seems to me that event or those five topics really demonstrated in my mind the need for an integrated, converged third-party risk management solution across every vertical in a corporation and really to the highest levels of corporation. Would, you, would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely agree. It seems to be very much so from even from a resilience standpoint, when you start looking at COVID measures across the globe, people realize they can't just send out the standard InfoSec assessment and park that on the shelf and proceed with business. People are 
definitely asking questions about geopolitical risks, even geographic adverse events like weather cycles have become pretty prominent in the last uh, last couple of months, even across the US, about understanding how the supply chain gets impacted, ethical supply through ESG, and then of course, sanctions. Sanctions has been a very prominent focus for us in the last year of organizations making sure that they're on the right side of the line there. So that convergence, the series and chain effect of all these various events meant that different department focuses have come to the forefront, yet the consistency is the fact that you are dealing with third parties and you need to get information across your supply chain and address with a varying type of risk. Alistair, one of the reasons I have been intrigued by Prevalent and followed Prevalent over the years is the focus on third-party risk management, which gave Prevalent the opportunity to really refine and hone uh, that product and that service series of service offerings you have around that. And that really leads me to ask, have you had success or you and your colleagues been able to simplify the user experience process for third-party risk management? Because when I was sitting in the CEO chair, that was the biggest thing from the business side or the business folks was the user experience. And usually it was around time and length to get answers and responses. But I was wondering if you could give a few words on what I'll call the UX. I agree. So that was actually one of our founding principles when we set up the technology many moons ago, which was when we actually looked at the market, we appreciated that compliance, regulatory management, and of course, the vendor estate being a macro problem, you're dealing with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of records. It's hard to actually present it in a way that's interpretable to a human being. I'm, you might be someone who's able to deal with hundreds of thousands of records of data and process that, but I definitely am not. And we took our learnings from data loss prevention management, managing broad enterprise estates, and took that over to the same space. So we tried to inject a bit more energy in focusing on the needles in the haystack, escalating and percolating all the things that are of concern, and try and absorb some of that noise from the broader estate. And that's the really part of the big challenge here is how can you articulate enough information to someone so they can be effective in their job without bombarding them with so much that they become paralyzed and never log in again. So in terms of obtaining the information, what's the process for obtaining it and then implementing controls to use that information through a risk management strategy? Of course. So it's usually multifaceted and we tend to look at it as a comprehensive profile. So there's multiple channels of getting information on a third party. And then the useful component is that technology now has evolved to the point where you can correlate the data points, which is great. But of course, assessments historically, 10, 15 years ago, you'd send out your regulatory framework, you ask for an ISO cert, SOC 2, SIG, whatever it may be, and then you'd read the results and you'd move on. Now, through being able to look at things such as continuous monitoring data sets, so looking at their cyber posture through passive scans, looking at the financial posture, reports on modern slavery statements, et cetera. All of that data set means you can ultimately contrast and compare against one another and find those contradicting statements, contradicting shreds of information. But the key that we see to this is they're all unique. They're all managed in a different way and different teams use them. But the way we address it is we try to normalize them as a risk. doesn't matter where it comes from. Once you've normalized it as something that's consistent, i.e. a risk, then it just becomes like anything else in your risk management framework. You, you manage it like you would do your internal risk posture. So how, or how have you or how would you suggest automating the input process so that you can have the, that data come in on some sort of regular, if not continuous basis? 
Sure. So key to that is finding the right feeds and the right data sets. And the biggest challenge we see in this space is the fact that people know what they want to do. People know roughly who they want to do it against, but they lack the structured data to do it. They want to onboard 1,000, 10,000 third parties and assess their posture in some shape or form. But they don't have that information to hand. They don't have the URLs. They don't have the actual name or location of those companies. And that's one of the biggest challenges in the space is better coordination from the third party teams with procurement, with finance to re-architect that existing data set and make sure any net new vendors, you capture that information in a structured way. When people have that in situ, then the various technologies out in the space, including prevalent, make life far more straightforward where they can start sitting back and dealing with the problems rather than trying to find out about so what about other areas of compliance outside anti-corruption, outside money laundering, such as modern slavery, human trafficking, and the like? Sure. So other focus areas we tend to see, of course, OFAC from a sanction standpoint in the US, ESG, modern slavery, there are repositories for most of those out there. But financial insights is becoming a bit of a key focus where we see people spending a fair bit of time. So understanding their financial posture, risk of bankruptcy in the next 12 months, et cetera. Payments, days beyond terms, are they typically not paying bills and stuff we want to know? Useful information, but also the general zeitgeist of that company. News articles, blog posts, acquisitions, operational changes, all of that is great information, which includes things like security incidents and events that you can then correlate to the regulatory framework and the regular, regulatory insight. I really have to unpack that last set of statements because you really just blew me away. Let me see if I can get them in order in my head. First of all, what I heard was a very different but holistic of looking at data points that many compliance professionals have not considered before. And since you mentioned financial health, I'll start with that one. Why is the general financial health of a subcontractor so critical in InfoSec, data privacy, data protection, anti-corruption, anti-money laundering? Are you having those conversations with your customers and clients? We are. So originally, interestingly enough, the driving force behind this is you expect is procurement. They want to understand that we're going to give you a significant amount of money. Are you going to provide this service or not? So that was that foundational understanding and requirement there. But what we found interesting over time is as we started to see this convergence of the teams, what we've started to see is the operational teams, for example, and even the compliance teams understand where there might be situations where from a resilience standpoint, they need to pivot. They need to find alternatives. They need backup processes, et cetera. So when you start looking at you know, the broader space, the broader workflow of the, t- of the organization, other teams have a vested interest in the same data. The, let me move to the geopolitical realm because a lot of people in the United States are thinking about China right now, Taiwan right now. Obviously, COVID is still prevalent. Sorry for that use of that word. In China, but they're thinking a little bit further down the road, up to it, including perhaps even a shooting war after a trade. Are you able to take something that may be, hopefully will be multiple years down the road and begin looking at some of the factors in a geopolitical sense to help companies who may have manufacturing facilities on mainland China or Taiwan or other some other geopolitical or geo region that might be at risk? as Yes. And some of the things that we're getting asked about and we're starting to work against are things such as looking at things like shipping manifests as they come through for organizations in the US. So understanding which of their providers 
you know, if you're a B2C organization, which your providers there are actually sourcing components and material from China. Surprisingly not, it's, it's usually a reasonable size. So understanding the geographies associated to that, of course, sanctions downstream related to particular companies that are your fourth parties, etc. So yes, the geopolitical insights beyond reacting to an event. So let's just say theoretically there's a new sanction or new geopolitical event in China that we need to do something about. It's about making sure that you have the suitable data set up, the fourth parties, supply chain feed information, data against fourth parties, et cetera, so that you can go and report back to the C-suite immediately and say, we've got this in hand. We've got some degree of resilience here, and we're not going to be on the wrong side of any regulatory frameworks or legal requirements. In the United States, or I should say in the United Kingdom, there's the Modern Slavery Act in the United States. Here we have the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And a key component of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is that companies must affirmatively show and demonstrate to the government that they are not purchasing products out of Xinjiang that are used or constructed with forced labor. Are you able to work with clients who have to go that extra step now? And if that becomes a model for compliance laws going forward, will you be able to take those kinds of steps with other clients if they have to make an affirmative showing such as they have to do under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act? Sure, yes. And that's where some of that data comparison becomes valuable. So as much as some organizations now would, on the surface, as a checkbox, send out a baseline assessment and say, are you managing your supply chain ethically, for example? And of course, everybody's going to say yes in most cases. Using things like the shipping manifest data, which I mentioned earlier on, you're able to qualify that information. There are notable data sets starting to emerge now, which actually aggregate people who've been subject to investigation for things like modern slavery, non-ethical supply chain works. And we can actually cross contrast and compare that against known entities, known individuals, and known fourth parties in the Far East and elsewhere that could be at risk or could be a concern. So what we're seeing customers ask for at the moment and clients ask for is a better way than simply asking them and taking them on face value that they're okay and they do the right thing but making sure that they have some degree of checkpoints to qualify it. And that's where that additional data comes in. The other thing that sort of struck me as almost a theme throughout this podcast, Alistair, is you're really, I hear you moving away from third-party risk management as a compliance concern to third-party risk management as an overarching business concern, and that there needs to be high visibility with a person or group, such as a board of directors or some type of high-level committee, which has visibility on all of these silos so they can begin to make decisions based upon a holistic approach. Are you saying something like that or is, or am I just hoping that you said it? No, exactly right, Tom. Yeah. So from our perspective, compliance to some extent can be relatively binary. If you look at particular frameworks and regulations, you might be compliant, but nonetheless, there's various facets of risk associated to it, even though you're on the right side of the line. So we encourage and actively support clients who would like to, of course, as a baseline, be expected to be compliant, but want to understand what are the associated risks. And what we're seeing clients start to do now, actually, is compare themselves to others in the space to be leaders. Previously, people would be happy sat in the middle of the pack, but a lot of clients now actually want to be thought leaders, three leaders in addressing risk and demonstrating to their client base that, 
hey, we understand that there's these various frameworks and regulations out there, but we go above and beyond that and we address risk proportionately based on ethics, based on the fact we want to be resilient to, to provide services, et cetera. Let me turn to ESG because there's a lot of discussion in the United States around that topic. And on the E, we have proposed regulations which would require companies to report scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Scope three is their third parties, the emissions that they would generate. And there, in my mind, numerous other touch points for third parties within the overall ESG framework. Are you having discussions with clients around the use of the prevalent solutions around ESG as opposed to sitting across me as a CEO? Yes, definitely. ESG seems to be the very much was the hot topic of 2022 from our client-based standpoint, whether it's driven by UN charter guidance or even just the local appetite for that. It's ultimately transcended a region. It's been a global desire we've seen to improve ESG posture. And as much as there's various feed data sets out there to help support and highlight environmental, social, governance, whatever it may be, where somebody stands, we appreciate it does require additional due diligence. You can get some degree of reporting information for some of the components, but when we actually break down ESG into its composite areas, we typically see in the region of about 15 to 25 different data points that give you a meaningful roundup of environmental, social, and governance into a single scoring. So another very regular contribution we see to that is, is that business monitoring component so understanding, are there articles and statements that qualify or contradict what they're saying? You know, if they say that we're a leader in emissions, for example, do their shareholder reports reflect that? Are they making statements to that fact? Because I would bet my hat on the fact that there will be a marketing team in that organization that will be looking to capitalize on their investment and spend that. And if they're not, then I begin to question whether they're actually doing it or not. So let me ask you to maybe put on your prognosticator hat and look down the road, I'm going to say to 2030, and perhaps even 2030 is mid-century, as much as I hate using that phrase. Here we are, 2023. We're still talking about third parties as one of the highest risks in a wide variety of compliance areas. We've talked about the evolution of solutions and the very comprehensive approach that Prevalent suggests clients consider. Where do you see us going down the road with all of this, Alistair? Sure. So if we look specifically at the third party space. I think it's really, as we enter into sort of the mid of the decade, it's transcending into third party life cycle management. So we're seeing the business accept that it is a requirement and you're seeing that cross collaboration across the teams. I would like to think from that point, what we're looking at is a combination of improved data sets, helping to support decisions, as well as contributions of things like machine learning means that we'll start seeing the space step away from repetitive tasks, individual analysis of vendors to be able to ultimately start looking at the regulatory space for our third party estate and have that information at our fingertips. We shouldn't have the situation where we're manually having to qualify and validate everything. I would like to think by mid-century, we've reached a point where all of these feeds and data sets and the business convergence has reached a point where it becomes as bread and butter and as standardized the norm, really, as other technologies that support the organization. is very process-driven, and it's going to continue to be process-driven into the 2030s, I believe. But the mechanisms, the data sets, the automations, and the business appetite will make that entire journey far easier through the life cycle. I'll start. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, 
prevalent or really any of the topics we've touched on today, where would be the best place for them to go? Of course. So by all means, by myself, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to discuss any of the topics that we've covered off today. And equally on the prevalent side, if you'd like to reach out to us, please feel free to visit our website at prevalent.net and uh, you'll be able to speak to us and we can even do a session where we can follow up on some of these criteria. Well, Astar, I wanted to thank you again. I hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where we reported on the LRN acquisition of compliance learning from Thomson Reuters. You can go to the firm's website that we've linked to in the show notes to find out more and how this acquisition will really position LRN going forward. I hope you'll join me in our next episode where we begin a special two-part series with the principles of the Texas Hill Country Advisors on the FTX scandal, where we look at it from a banking risk management perspective and from an investor due diligence perspective. I know you'll enjoy the next two episodes of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>